This evening, I'd invite you to open in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 1. If uh, you're perhaps new to the Bible, uh, you'll find it in the last uh, third uh, of your Bible. It's one of the letters written by the Apostle Paul. There's a series of letters all there together, and the way I navigate my way through it is, is uh, the little saying, uh, the General Electric Power Company. So Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Uh, and so if you have trouble uh, finding that, the General Electric Power Company, uh, it'll be right after uh, the book of Ephesians, and we'll be looking at the first 11 verses. So several weeks ago, we began a series of studies in uh, Paul's letter to the Philippians, and we set up the the context for that letter. We saw that this was a church uh, whom Paul had a great affection uh, for on account of their partnership in the gospel, and this was a a partnership which had began when uh, some 10 years prior, most likely, uh, Paul and his associates had come to Philippi, and they had uh, preached the gospel, and God had blessed that ministry, and a church uh, had been uh, birthed there as part of Paul's second missionary journey. And we had looked at the first eight verses of that letter, and we saw how Paul expressed this joy-filled thanksgiving to God uh, on account of uh, the partnership which he had with the Philippians in the gospel, and on account of the security which the Philippians had in the gospel. And so now we're going to pick up our study at verse 9 and see how Paul moves uh, from giving thanks to God for the Philippians uh, to praying uh, for the Philippians. And so let's read that together. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It's right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it's my prayer that your love may abound more and more, with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Let's ask for God's help. Oh God, as we come to these words, we thank you for them and for how you give us the scriptures so that we might uh, be equipped for um, every good work and act of obedience that you would have for us. And so as we look at Paul's prayer, we, we ask that you would help us to pray. And you would help us to learn how to pray and to bring our desires in alignment with yours. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The question which our passage helps us uh, to answer this evening is a very practical one. How can I pray for my fellow Christians? And the verses that occupy our attention tonight, 9 through 11, they're not particularly uh, complicated in terms of their outline, but Paul's uh, prayer can be useful to us as we consider our own prayers. Prayer is something that uh, many of us find difficult. We uh, may find it uh, difficult to pray at times because we lack the motivation or spiritual unction to pray. Sometimes our struggle is that 
we don't understand prayer or how God uses uh, prayer. And still other times, it's simply that we don't know where to start with prayer, as someone shared with me uh, quite honestly very recently. Prayer is one of those things that is not just taught, but caught. We learn to pray for a good or for ill by listening to other people pray. Why is it that there are certain peculiarities in, uh, in another person's praying that stands out, to it, uh, stands out to us? Oftentimes, it's because they've learned a particular way of praying from those who have been most spiritually influential in their life, and they've adopted this manner of speaking as their own. Well, one of the best ways that we can learn how to pray is to pray with other Christians and to hear their prayers. And so it's quite helpful for us to have here the prayer of the Apostle Paul recorded for us so we can listen in to how he prays and we can begin to have our prayers shaped accordingly. Now, not everyone is an example worth copying, but we, if we can learn to pray like the Holy Spirit-inspired Apostle, that would certainly be a good thing for our prayers. So more specifically, we're, we're going to overhear how the Apostle Paul prays for his fellow Christians. And by listening in on his prayer, seeing his petitions and his priorities in prayer, we have the opportunity, if, if the Spirit would bless our study, to have uh, our desires for ourselves and for our fellow Christians, uh, as expressed in this prayer, align more with the heart of Paul, but more importantly, with the heart of God. So here's what Paul prays for. Paul prays that his gospel partners would abound with a discerning love which would result in a spiritually fruitful life to the glory of God. Now notice the logic of, of Paul's prayer for his gospel partners here. He prays for an inner transformation manifested in their daily decisions, which results in a long-term fruitfulness for the glory of God. And so that's our outline for our message. If uh, that's useful to us, we're going to or useful to you, we're going to look at a, an inner transformation, daily decisions and long-term fruitfulness. So let's begin by considering the inner transformation that Paul prays for his fellow believers, which we see in verse 9. He prays that the love that the Philippians have would abound increasingly, and it would be found with knowledge and all discernment. That Paul would begin by noting the love of the Philippians isn't a surprising thing if we think about it. Love is a major theme in Paul's writing, uh, and it's a, a major theme in his other recorded prayers. And it's not just that Paul uh, uh, mentions love frequently, but Paul places a significant and unique emphasis on love as a Christian virtue. In Colossians 3.14, after Paul has urged the Colossians to put on a series of, uh, of virtues, he adds, and above all these, put on love, which binds everything, which I think means all those other vir virtues, together in perfect harmony. Paul makes a, a similar point in 1 Corinthians 13, a well-known passage to us, when he says that uh, love is the virtue that undergirds patience and kindness and humility and gentleness and long-suffering. And because of this, Paul will declare that out of the three theological virtues, out of faith, hope, and love, love is the greatest virtue. Love is, is both an, an instrument and an evidence of spiritual maturity for Paul. In Ephesians chapter 4, Paul's speaking about how Christ gives gifts uh, to the church for their maturing uh, in, in the faith. 
And he says that one of the ways we move from immaturity to maturity is by speaking the truth in love. It's through love that the church is built up in a Christ-like maturity, and it's love that's a defining mark of spiritual maturity. Without love, though we can make great sacrifices, perform great things, uh, ace a Bible test, we have nothing. Love is meant to saturate the whole of the Christian life. We're to be a people in whom uh, faith in Christ works itself out in love. Let all that you do be done in love, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 16, 14. Love, as he argues in Galatians 5, it's the fulfillment of the law. And while the Philippians did have their challenges in loving each other, as we'll see in future studies, they were, it seems, a a pretty loving uh, congregation, as we see um, manifested in uh, their concern for their sick brother Epaphroditus, which we read about in chapter 2, their concern for Paul's well-being and their giving of, of gifts to support him. In fact, Paul here in verse 9 acknowledges that the Philippians have love, a love for God uh, as, as demonstrated in, in their, their fellowship in the gospel and a love for each other. But while love is a necessary and foundational feature of the Christian life, Paul makes clear that love is not sufficient. Okay, so with apologies to the Beatles, it's not true that all you need is love, love, love is all you need, right? That's not true. That's as as much as you're going to get a solo out of me, okay? Special music from Pastor Wayne. Dick Lucas, a British preacher, helpfully illustrated this point in a sermon on on this text. He gave the example of driving uh, down uh, a road after a heavy snow. And the snow gets uh, packed and hard. And as the snow begins to to shine on the road, the snow begins uh, to melt. Well, one of the marks of a converted person, of a a Christian, Lucas noted, is that uh, God's love shines into a person's heart and they begin to experience an an inner warmth, a, a, a love that comes as God's love is poured into their hearts. But snow that's only half melted is just slush. It's no better to drive in than snow. But that, says Lucas, is what underdeveloped love or love on its own is. It's slush. It's sloshy sentimentality. Yes, love is a necessary fruit of the Christian life. And unfortunately, we need to admit that in our theological tradition, sometimes we've erred at this point. Reformed churches can emphasize a formal knowledge of the Bible and biblical doctrines which are vitally important while neglecting the biblical duty to love. So historically, we've got to recognize or be careful that we don't prioritize doctrine while forsaking love. But that's not the only error to be on guard against. Slushy love Love without knowledge, love without a basis in the truth is also a problem. In fact, it's probably the more predominant problem in our culture. In a postmodern world in which objective, universal truth uh, is denied, we're left with the meaningless assertion that love is love. It's a statement that tells us nothing. Love is little more than a a warm feeling or an emotion that can express itself however uh, it wants. It's just empty sentimentality. To illustrate the insufficiency of love, consider the example of a husband purchasing a Christmas gift for his wife. The husband loves his wife. And so what does he do? 
Does he uh, go to his favorite hardware store and purchase the air compressor that he's really been wanting to buy? No. Does he just go to Google and purchase the first thing that comes up in his search? Or ask Siri or Alexa? Right? His wife certainly hopes not. To express his love, he wants to give a, a meaningful gift. He wants to give a really thoughtful gift. In the case of the husband, his love shows its depth and meaning because uh, it's joined with a knowledge of, of his wife, what she's like and what she wants. So even if he's filled with really positive emotions about his wife, when he buys her the air compressor, that's not going to make her feel any better about the gift. Right? A husband's knowledge of his wife uh, uh, enriches the love that he has for her and enriches uh, the expression of it. If we're to use another picture of what Paul is saying in, in verse 9, perhaps an overly simplified picture, you might think of, of love uh, like the motor that motivates action. And you might think of knowledge and discernment as the steering wheel that directs love the right way. Love, for it to have a practical effect, must abound in knowledge and discernment, which is what Paul prays for the Philippians. Now, knowledge here does not uh, refer to uh, academic smarts or just having lots of facts or trivia stuck in your head, but it's, it's a, a knowledge about God and how he has made himself known in the gospel. Fifteen times Paul uses this word for knowledge, and in all but one occurrence, it's referring uh, to a, a, a personal acquaintance, a personal knowledge of who God is and how he has revealed himself. So Paul wants the Philippians' love to be informed by an understanding of who God is, uh, the nature of the gospel, and what God is pleased by. Discernment, which he also asks for, refers to an ability to understand. Uh, how, do, uh, how do we know, you know, we know certain things are true, but how does that apply to a given situation? It's uh, moral insight, it's perception, it's understanding. We might think of it uh, as applied knowledge or, or wisdom. And it's both knowledge and discernment that Paul wishes would permeate the Philippians' love. Love without these two qualities uh, will be an ineffective love. For love to pack a punch, for love to, to have uh, substance and meaning, it needs to be informed by knowledge and discernment. And though Paul elsewhere will warn that uh, knowledge without love puffs up, it's of no value, he never belittles the value of, of knowing what's true. Paul's a preacher, right? He's constantly laboring for and praying for uh, that the, the people he's ministering to, that they would know the truth and that they would be filled with spiritual wisdom and understanding as it's found in Jesus. And so we see that Paul begins by praying for this continued inner transformation of his gospel partners so that they would have a, a growing love, a, a love that's growing in knowledge and discernment. But Paul's prayer is not merely about internal growth. It's a prayer that's action-oriented. It's seeking an inner transformation that affects everyday decisions and choices of, of his fellow believers. We see this in verse 10, where the so that gives the immediate purpose of this growth. It's so that the Philippians might approve what is excellent. The implication is that being filled with this knowledge and discerning, uh, knowledgeable and discerning love that the Philippians can discriminate in the best sense of the word uh, between the various choices that are in front of them. And then they can make uh, the, the best, the most excellent choice. Now this approving what's excellent, it, it's possible that it could refer to 
uh, discerning right from wrong, but it seems unlikely that, that Paul's making that case. It doesn't seem like it, it takes a lot of knowledge or discernment to know that lying is wrong or stealing is wrong or committing adultery is wrong. It seems more likely, I think, and, and more meaningful that Paul would pray as he does so that the Philippians would be able to determine what's best between a variety of legitimate, uh, God-honoring alternatives. It's um, said of, of elite sports stars that they're able to see the, the game unfold around them with crystal clarity. I wouldn't know because I've never been an elite sports star, but they, they have an understanding of where the game clock is, where people are, are, are moving around. They can see it unfolding uh, around them all at, at once. They see the passing routes, the various places they can run. And in a heartbeat, the elite of the elite athletes are able to identify among a dozen options which one's going to be the best one to advance the purposes of their team. What's the best play? You've heard announcers talk about this, uh, that so-and-so's got a, a high basketball IQ or good court vision, or uh, they, they have a reputation, a quarterback's got a reputation for making uh, good decisions. So it, what we're saying there is, amidst all the, the pressures and movements of the game, these stars are able to make choices, sometimes choices that we didn't even think were, were possible, that move their team uh, toward their goal of victory. Well, in a sense, that's what Paul is, is praying for the Philippians as it concerns Christian living. At any given moment, as Christians, there are choices that must be made. And they're not uh, always just decisions between uh, what's morally right and morally wrong, but sometimes they're choices between what's good and what's best. So, for example, uh, you have a spare hour. You can read a, a devotional book or you can take some time to play uh, with your children. Or it's Sunday afternoon and you can take a nap or uh, you can invite a new family from church over for fellowship. Or you think about, what am I supposed to do with my life, Lord? Am I supposed to go into the military knowing that there's uh, a need for Christian witness there or should I go into the academy? Should I be a, a pastor or should I serve the Lord in business? Now you've got some money. How should I, how should I spend this extra money that I've got? tithe to the church already? Should I use it for hospitality or, or give to a missions agency or, or invest it so I have more resources uh, for later on? In each of these cases, uh, the options all have value. You can read through your Bible uh, and you're not going to see a verse that's going to make it immediately uh, clear what you should decide. Right? There are good things which God wants us to do, but we can't do each one of them all, all at the same time. Well, Paul is praying that God would transform the Philippians, his gospel partners, in such a way that they, in these situations, they, they would begin to, to more and more know and want what is best. It's true that ultimately when we make these sorts of decisions, we rest in the fact that God's purposes are always accomplished. We can't sabotage God's plans by choosing wrongly. Paul knows this. And yet he prays that as the Philippians navigate these daily choices, they would be able to choose what is most excellent. Now this raises the question, what does Paul mean by excellent or best? And why does it matter? Well, this leads us to our third point. The second half of verse 10 and verse 11 help us to understand what Paul has in mind when he is, is speaking of choosing what is excellent because here Paul gives us the end of his prayer, not just the finish, but the, the telos, the purpose, the ultimate goal that he wants to see come from his prayer. 
So what ultimately does Paul want to see from, uh, from these excellent choices informed by this knowledgeable and discerning love? Well, here we've got to make two points. Paul's praying for these daily decisions of the Philippians uh, so that uh, they would, would choose what is most excellent so they would be pure and blameless in the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. Now notice that when Paul prays that they would choose what is best, it's not a matter of what tends or, or will result in what's most comfortable or most immediately pleasing or favorable. It's an interesting contrast between Paul's prayer here and so many of our own prayers, which, if we're honest, are usually uh, about immediate concerns. How many of the things we pray for concerning ourselves or others uh, will be out of date in a month or two? So we pray for uh, a healing uh, from a surgery. We pray that a difficult conversation will go well. We we ask the Lord uh, for a job to materialize. And Jesus wants us to pray for these things. He wants us to pray for our daily needs. And so it's right to do that. But sort of like uh, uh, the wallpaper in your grandmother's house, these things go out of style very quickly. Right? We're just, our prayers are so connected to, the, to our immediate circumstances. In Paul's prayer, though, notice that while he's expecting uh, uh, immediate transformation in the present, he's also got his eye to the future, the day of Jesus reappearing. He has the long view, the the big picture in mind as he prays. This present transformation that he wants to see in the Philippians' inner life and the outward expression of it in daily decisions, it will produce a final result that's evident when Jesus returns to judge the living and the dead. And to that end, uh, Paul prays that the Philippians would be pure, that they would be inwardly sincere and genuine, And he prays that they would be blameless, that there would be nothing in their outward conduct that would produce a scandal or or cause needless offense. Paul's desired outcome for his prayer uh, uh, is that as a result of this knowledgeable and discerning love, that they would choose again and again uh, uh, the the way that is best to live a holy and God-pleasing life. That their lives would produce fruit, evidences of God's work in them. The sense is that of of an apple tree just weighed down by its harvest. That these Christians, like that apple tree, would would stand before Jesus one day with the fruits of their good works. The records of their lives would be this rich uh, testimony of concrete acts of love uh, for God and love for neighbor. Now don't misunderstand. These good works, uh, this fruit of righteousness that are not offered to Jesus as the reason why he should accept a person or save a person, our good works cannot secure God's favor because, as Paul shows us even in these verses, we're only able to do them through Jesus Christ as he works in us. Verse 11. And yet, while these fruits of obedience, they don't save us, we offer them to God. And Paul wants the Philippians to be tuned into those choices that would would tend uh, to what is most righteous and most holy and most good. Paul wants them to discern and to be able to to act upon those things that would would ultimately, in the end, be most pleasing to God and most spiritually fruitful. He doesn't want them to stand before the judgment seat of Christ where all our works will be judged with a meager offering because they squandered time and wasted money and neglected opportunities to do good. Instead, Paul's praying, he wants them to have 
this knowledgeable love that they would seize every opportunity to manifest the work of God in them. That they would be spiritually productive disciples. And yet, excellence and spiritual fruitfulness is never ultimately for personal satisfaction. It's not just about being a good person, uh, living a good life, and being able to say, I did a good job. Paul asked for these things in order that the Philippians' lives and, and the work of Christ in them, that this would be to the glory and praise of God. Since it's God that Paul is praying to, he's asking God to answer these prayers. It, it, it's a prayer uh, 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 that, that he and Christ who works in us would be glorified, that he would receive the credit and the praise. So as we step back, as we think about Paul's prayer and what it means for our life, the first conclusion I think we can draw is that Paul wants us to shake off any complacent understanding of the Christian life. The Philippian church is one of the healthier congregations that Paul uh, was, was writing to, as I mentioned, and yet Paul still prays for them that their love would grow in knowledge and discernment so that they would make uh, the choices that would uh, result in the holiest, most fruitful lives possible. The Philippians had come to a saving knowledge of Christ, a saving faith in Christ, and though they're not as morally troublesome as the Corinthians, they're not as theologically misguided as the Galatians, Paul's not content uh, with, with just staying there. Paul's not content with just saying, okay, we, we've avoided major doctrinal error, major moral error, but having been transformed by the love of Christ, and no, notice again that Paul is not motivated by gaining Christ's love, he's motivated to show God's love at work in him. Transformed by God's love, Paul wants them to avoid more than just faithlessness. He wants them to see maximum fruitfulness uh, in their lives. Again, it's important to understand, Paul's not contradicting what we read in Galatians 3 this morning. He's not saying that now that you're saved, you need to perfect, uh, uh, be perfected by good works. Right? But he, he's saying that as, as you've come to Christ, as you're rooted in Christ, and as this love matures in, in you with knowledge, it grows in you with discernment, your choices, what you want, is going to change. And Paul's eager to see this transforming power of Christ in them at work so that they would be more ambitious for, uh, for uh, yielding the fruits of holiness in their life, fruits of, of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness. Paul's praying for lives that would, would have been uh, transformed and, and that would reflect this transformation through spiritual fruitfulness. But secondly, Paul's prayer teaches us how we can pray for our fellow Christians. And so I want to close by briefly summarizing four features of Paul's prayer that can shape how we pray uh, for our families, how we can pr uh, pray uh, for uh, our fellow Christians, how we can pray for our church. First, pray for the formation of Christ-like character. Wherever our fellow Christians are, in the Christian life, whether they are recent converts or whether they are mature Christians who have served the Lord for decades, we can pray that they would be characterized by this love that's growing in knowledge and discernment. You can pray for your fellow Christians that God would work through the reading and preaching of the Word, not only to cause their love for God and for others to grow, but that they would grow in their knowledge of, of who God is and His work and His Word. Pray that, that God would give your fellow believers a deep love for the things that he loves, but also the wisdom and discernment to know how does God's word apply to the complexities of their life. Secondly, 
We can pray that God would cause His sanctifying work in our fellow believers to result in spiritually fruitful choices. Think for a moment about those uh, in your Christian life who you are closest to. Uh, This would be your family and friends most likely. Uh, Maybe your small group or Bible study, a committee that you're serving on. Uh, uh, Maybe your fellow elders or, or deacons. And consider what it would look like if if your fellow Christians were displaying an increased capacity to make choices with their time and with their money and their words and their actions, uh, that they would be growing in, in their ability to make these choices so that they would most acutely, most clearly display Jesus and honor Jesus. If God grants that, think of the impact that that's going to have in, in your small group. Think of if that's what our prayer is for Harvest Church. If, if God is, is increasing that our love and knowledge of Him together, think, think of, of the fruits that are going to be yielded from that. So when you pray for others, pray that God would give a discerning love so that your fellow Christians would make choices that would most honor Jesus in their character and conduct. Third, pray for your fellow uh, Christians, that they, uh, uh, and while you pray for them, be mindful of eternity. We're going to stand in front of Jesus. We're creatures that will live forever, either enjoying eternal life or eternal condemnation. And elsewhere, the Bible tells us that though we're not accepted by God on the basis of our works, our works will be judged, and those works done in faith, uh, according to Scripture, and for God's glory, He's going to graciously reward, in spite of the imperfections and weaknesses in them. And though it's only through God's empowering uh, that we're able to do any truly uh, good thing, yet God still chooses to reward us. He doesn't have to, but he chooses to. And we'll get to enjoy those fruits. When I think of of standing before Jesus, what do I want? I want to hear Jesus' commendation, well done, good and faithful servant. And if you think of of that parable, uh, 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 Jesus uh, uh, invites the the servant in, right? He he says, you've been faithful in a little. Uh, And and then he invites him into the the, the, uh, many more rewards that he has uh, for this this fruitful servant. I want that for my life. But I also want that for your life, as one of your pastors, as as my fellow believers, right? I want to see uh, the fruits of righteousness uh, 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 displayed in Chase's life, in Todd's life, and in Steve's life as we stand before the judgment seat of Jesus I'm going to be able to, to rejoice and delight in that, uh, that as these fruits are yielded up and as you uh, enjoy the reward which God graciously bestows on you. So we should pray for our fellow Christians with an eye to that day when they stand before Jesus, that they would be able to enter into that rich joy which he's prepared for us. And lastly, we want to pray this. We pray it for uh, the, the joy, uh, the good of our fellow Christians. We, we pray because it brings us joy. But finally, it isn't about us. All right? we, we pray these things because we want it for God's glory. As we've been transformed, as God's love comes to live in us, uh, we, and, and as we grow in our knowledge of who He is in the gospel, what we want most of all is for our Savior, the one who redeemed us and rescued us, for Him to get the praise and the glory and the credit. So let me encourage you to pray with, uh, for your gospel partners with eternity uh, in view, but also with the glory of God in view. Let's pray. 
Oh Lord God, for Harvest Church, we pray, we plead with you that you would cause us to grow in love, but not love alone, that we would also be growing in, in the knowledge of you as you've revealed yourself in your Son, our Lord Jesus. And we would be growing in discernment and wisdom to know how we could best live to please you. We pray, Lord, for this, uh, that, that you would uh, cause this transformation to take place in us as, as individuals and as a church, and that that would result in us as, as a church choosing the things that are our best. When we think of leadership decisions that need to be made, but also, Lord, as we think about our ministries as, as individual Christians, that that would transform uh, how we, as your people, go about our lives. We pray, Lord, that in us, you would yield a fruit of righteousness. That we would uh, have, uh, uh, the work of Christ in us would be increasingly evident as what we want and what we choose more and more reflects your grace. And we pray that this would be all done to the glory of you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I ask that the elders now come forward.